Hello and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes, and on this episode, we chat with writer and visual artist Sarah Baum about her third book, Handiwork. It follows two acclaimed novels, Spill, Simmer, Falter, Wither, and A Line Made by Walking, which were also published by Tramp Press. Handiwork, just last week shortlisted for the prestigious Rathbones Folio Prize, is a contemplative short narrative that charts Sarah's daily process of making and writing, exploring what it is to create and to live as an artist. Short and spare, gentle and devastating, it reflects on the nature of art, grief, bird migration and a life well lived. In her own words, this little book is a love child of my art and writing practices, or a byproduct of novels past and coming. It's about the connection between handicraft and bird migration, as well as simply the account of a year spent making hundreds of small painted objects in an isolated house. In my own words, you simply must let this book into your life. As you might be able to infer, I love Sarah's work with the heat of approximately 1000 suns. So it was a total pleasure to have an excuse to re-re-read Handiwork, a book that has stayed with me since I first read it this time last year, and to talk to Sarah about her work. This episode also audibly stars a rooster and a dog shouting in the background, but we hope in a conversation about birds with an author whose first novel centres on a dog called One Eye that you will excuse it. Well, first of all, thank you so much for um, making time for us today. It's a proper pleasure, I have to say, because I have carried this book about with me just all of 2020 and into 2021. Peggy, you've always been so supportive of my books. I know you've been a fan because I joined Instagram this year, like my big uh, foray with social media. I've seen you sort of supporting this book and tweeting pictures of quotes and stuff. That's so nice. It's so heartening, I think, particularly with this one. Yeah. And congrats, of course, because we're, we're, we're meeting you just as it's been shortlisted for the Rathbones Folio Prize and coming up to a year of the book being in the world. Can you tell us, after two novels and now this you know, gorgeous little sort of short non, non-fictional narrative, can you tell us about the beginnings of the book, Sarah? Yeah, well, it's funny because it was kind of on the back of the two other books that this came about, but in a sort of backwards way, like originally, and and I talk about this in Handiwork, I trained as an artist and, and went to art school. And then it was sort of out of a frustration with, well, partly just out of a frustration with the lack of space, but also out of, I suppose, the inadequacy of, of a visual medium that I started to write. So I was spending a lot of time writing about art. And at a certain point, I thought, well, why don't I write fiction? Because actually what I love to write is fiction. But it was also out of frustration, I think, because I was sort of making things and trying to put them in the world and people never quite got them as I wanted them to be perceived. And so I sort of thought, you know, flip it, why don't I just write what I mean? And then people would know exactly what I mean, because I will have written it exactly. (laughs) And so I wrote and seemed to get published quite easily. And then with my first novel, it was it was very much like, okay, I'm going to be a real novelist now, I'm going to write like a real novel shaped thing, and make up fictional characters and have a storyline, etc, etc. And I pulled it off. So then with my second novel, I thought, okay, I'm going to write something a bit more back towards my roots. So A Line Made by Walking is full of art and references to contemporary art and is in the voice of a sort of struggling artist. After my second novel, I went through a long phase of just really not wanting to write, being really tired of sitting at my desk because, I mean, it's been wonderful to do well, but one of the side effects of doing well is that you spend up 
a lot of time doing sort of self-admin. And I think that sort of drove me back to working with my hands, which I'd never stopped doing, but I'd stopped putting aside sort of focused time to do it, I suppose, or thinking about the things I made as series or projects that would build into something. So then I started spending a lot of time doing that. I think this was also partly a response to my dad's death, which is something that handiwork is also kind of about. But at a certain point, I felt awful that I was, you know, in my perception, sort of wasting so many hours making stuff, making useless stuff that nobody wanted. And I thought, well, I can sort of justify this by explaining to myself this insistence that I've always felt to work with my hands and what the point, what I feel the point of these objects is in the world, or, or perhaps just to explain their pointlessness in a way. And, and that was completely where handiwork came from. And then at a certain point, I realized it was perhaps long enough to be a tiny book. And I mean, various other things happen, but that's <laughs> that's a very convoluted way of, <laughs> of, of summarizing it. <laughs> It's lovely. It gives us a way in. And also for those people who have yet to encounter it, you know, it's good for them to have a sense. But I hope very much that, that they will. They'll, they'll take the opportunity to encounter it now. I mean, for, for all that, I mean, it is a very small, very slender little book, but there's such a lot going on with it. Like you've already alluded to, you know, the death of your dad and, you know, it's packed with reflections on birds and nature and renewal and all, all sorts of things. I mean, I wonder how much of those things are planned from a beginning place or how much they come along with you as you get into the writing of it? Well, I, I certainly couldn't have. I didn't know this at the start when I first started trying to write a book with Spill Simmer, I suppose. But what I've learned is that, you know, and I was thinking about this only recently in the context of the Rathbone's Folio Prize, is that if you write well, if you write well enough, you can write about anything. You know, you can describe paint drying or however boring or uneventful it might be. If you write well, you can get away with it. <laughs> so that was, and because I guess I was already two books in, I kind of felt like this was my premise. If I could write well enough, then it was okay that nothing happened, that there was no storyline. <laughs> and then it was okay. And I mean, the other thing that I believe strongly in is that everything is connected if you look hard enough. And I suppose this everything is connected in a life, you know, like it's like the way style sort of emerges in a writer or in an artist or anyone, you know, style sort of comes from the habits that you have or the things that, that you care about that you go back to again and again, and you don't really think about it, but it's there. So without sort of planning, without ever sitting down and saying, okay, this is, book is going to have bird migration in it and it's going to have the arts and crafts movement and it's going to have John James Audubon and they're all going to come together nicely at the end. I just sort of hopped. I mean, all of the thoughts about making were in my head. And then the real catalyst was the episode that's described at the very beginning of the book. When I'm listening to a podcast of In Our Time, the Melvin Bragg thing on BBC Radio 4. And it's about bird migration. And he describes this one particular bird, the northern wheat ear. And it just struck me. I made such a connection with the very long, fragmented journey of this little bird and the pointlessness of it and what I was doing, which was just sitting at this table for hours and hours carving the objects. And once I'd made that connection, you know, all of these other connections start to come into your mind, like, you know, flow and soaring. And, and then I suppose I started grasping at other things. I'll always try to read around a subject. And I was working then after a while toward an exhibition and with a curator who was recommending me books. And, you know, everything, when something is in your head, you know, everything is connected to it. And if you can put it down and convince the reader that they're connected. and But you don't really have to either. You know, 
I think I think usually it's apparent that we treat readers too softly, that people are able to make their own connections or make the same connections you did with very little, you know, effort on the author's behalf. I think you're right about if the writing's good enough, the reader will come with you. I mean, I, I want to, there's lots I want to ask you about, but when, you know, you've just, just mentioned the Wheatier, the Northern Wheatier, and I, I want to ask you about um, birds. I love In Our Time as well, by the way. I'm glad that that, that, did, yeah, that was the that was the programming question. But these, these astonishing little birds, I mean, what was your, were you already a bird fan before this book or was it partly that show that sort of and therefore writing the book that led you there um well I think I must have I must have chosen the show like there's so many episodes <laughs> so I'd obviously chosen the bird migration one but like I've always known you know I I would say that I've always been above average at birds so I would know you know a song thrush from a missile thrush but there was a point at which I just became fascinated by them and I think once you kind of open that little door in your mind it doesn't shut again you suddenly realize that birds out of everything in nature you know are there constantly like you you know, you can get obsessed with badgers and start going on walks through woods in the night and your chances of seeing a badger are still slim. But here with birds, I just felt that, you know, there's such a variety of them. Um, I couldn't believe that I hadn't been so fascinated by them before. And so then I, I started to learn and I was doing courses. God, I can't remember the exact timeline, but definitely parallel to writing the book, I would have been doing a few courses with Birdwatch Ireland here, which would be, you know, the equivalent to the RSPB. Uh, I just, just suddenly felt I needed to know all of the names and and I'm pretty good now on the Irish slash British species. But then um, Audubon's Birds of America was a revelation to me, like the birds there are so different and there's so many more. You're absolutely right. I love the idea. You make this sort of distinction between, you know, the more, I don't know, let's say glamorous, the kind of, you know, the, the birds on their way, somewhere glamorous, and then and then the daily birds, the neighbour birds. I love that. But we couldn't, like, we couldn't attract anything. And I mean, part of um, the story in the book is about our struggle, Mark and I, my partner, to attract birds to our garden. Because when we first came here, like, it's it's just a rented house. We couldn't, we put up a feeder and I think nothing came for a few days. Then it blew down and then we put it back up again and then it blew down. And it's like I'm from the country and he's from the, from the inner city. So I'm always like sort of um, putting on my, my authoritative voice and telling him things <laughs> in the countryside. <laughs> So I was like, no, birds don't like they need to have that you're more likely to get birds, for example, say in a suburban garden, because you'll have other people around you that are feeding the birds and they'll know to come and get the food. But that if you just like end up on a hill in the middle of nowhere and put up a bird feeder, they're not going to it's not going to be on their radar. So then it wasn't until I mean, we've lived here for about five years. But then throughout 2018, which was when I was also writing the book, we were like, we're going to make a real effort, going to make a concerted effort to attract the birds. So part of that is the story as well. Like and it's really just the story of putting up a feeder here putting up a night, some Niger seed there, you know, <laughs> making a bird table. Yeah. And I suppose that it's also just about the, the sort of, to echo the kind of patience of making, it's the patience of, of, of kind of attracting birds as well. You know, that there, it doesn't just happen overnight. We've, we've tried and did the RSPB big bird watch thing and all that and not a sausage, not a bird. So, <laughs> and are are you in like suburbia? Yeah, we're in suburban land. Yeah, there are some neighbour cats though, so I think that might have something to do with it. That's actually a massive source of bird death, like bird. Oh, word? bird, yeah. <laughs> bird aside. Yeah. <laughs> like um, bird aside. Yeah. But yeah, and I'm awful. I despise cats. I can't bring myself to like a cat picture on Instagram, Peggy. I've tried. I've oh, tried. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of them about Sarah. There's a lot of cats on there. That's one thing. If you're <laughs> 
that's <laughs> yes, yeah. And but I mean, they're so well fed, and they still insist on sort of killing birds for sport, and that infuriates me. So I'm not a, I'm not a fan of them. Um, but p- persist, persist, because sometimes it's just finding like the right kind of seed, the right kind of feed for the for the birds that are around you. I want to I want to come back to something you said a bit earlier on about the art being in the world and not understood, and then the, the language of being able to articulate that a little a little bit more clearly when you when you took to sort of writing about it yourself. I wonder how much the, the two, these two mediums, you know, the art of handiwork, you know, the making and the the sort of crafting of a, of a book or that when you're writing, how much do they borrow from each other, if at all? Well, I, I've heard so many writers make the analogy, you know, they talk about having a big lump of marble and then chipping away bits of the marble and finally getting down to the thing. <laughs> and um, I'm like, I get that. That's true. That's completely true. But I can't, I, I always end up making the sort of comparison the other way around because I went to art school first and I learned that sort of language of things. And for me, I, I carried a lot of that from art school and brought it to writing because it was, it was how I'd been trained, even though it was sort of being trained in a different thing. I had a brilliant tutor for most of the years. I did a year of like um, core, which is you you kind of do a bit of everything and then you specialize. So I specialized in sculpture, but it didn't actually, what I specialized in was 3D because the college I went to um, and at the time that I went there was very progressive, I suppose. And they had a very strong film department and the emphasis was on video and sound and photography and much less so on traditional crafts or painting and sculpture. Even So we didn't, I didn't learn a lot of skills. Um, I learned a lot of how to develop a thought process, you know. Um, so really, I, I learned how to be a conceptual artist <laughs> and came out and became a writer, which seems logical to me now. But I had I did have one brilliant sculptor who was a tutor. And I always remember him saying that every part of a thing has to make sense. So, for example, if you're making some kind of a machine, you know, you don't just paint it red because red is your favorite color. You know, you paint it red because red has some intrinsic meaning to what the machine is um, or what it's trying to do, you know, or don't make it move in a certain or all of the materials had to sort of cohere and convince the viewer. And, you know, it's just the same when you're writing something, whatever you're writing, perhaps in particular with fiction, you know, every element of a thing has to be convincing. It has to not be incongruous. It's like um, the gun that you put the gun in the first scene and it has to go off by the last scene. So um, so it was the same thing, but I sort of learned it backwards. And I've carried through a lot of that kind of foundation in work ethic as well, I suppose, um, just keeping at something until you've gotten it right. So there's a lot of truth in like having the slab of marble and just chiseling away. <laughs> you know, like writing is editing. Um, and subtracting most of the time, isn't it? I think that's one of the things I'd, I'd never read a book before that was so carefully drew that that picture of the process, I suppose, you know, the sort of you talk a lot about time in the book and how long things take and that how many hours are given over to, to process and decisions. And, you know, I, and I just that gave me a lot of a lot to think about. I wonder something that you've, you've mentioned already is the idea of sort of almost beauty versus utility. And the book asks a lot of questions of that, you know, the the point of making. I wonder if those are some of the questions that you were able to answer in writing it, or if you're any closer to having an answer for yourself on those. Uh, I mean, William Morris comes up in it quite a bit, and he's kind of not cool at the moment, and yet he's also having a... (laughs) This is hard to articulate. It's like, he's not cool amongst the cool people, and yet H&M are making, like, you know, mass-producing his designs on sort of cheap um, fast fashion or whatever. But I very much, I, I guess what I mean is that Kraft and the likes of William Morris, Rushkin, and, you know, people who I sort of consider my heroes now weren't cool when I was in art school. And the decorative arts, you know, were sort of looked down upon in my department, which would have been sort of fine art. Uh, so it, part of 
writing handiwork as well was about coming back to those ideas and foremost amongst them being this thing that Mara said about, um, you know, put nothing in your house that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful, um, I think is the way it goes. And so I suppose it was me finding my way back to making an art that could be useful or that could be decorative and that that was okay. And that also, you know, should be made with love, even not necessarily well made. And it's sort of me accepting that it doesn't actually matter that I'm not a brilliantly skilled ceramicist or um, tapestry maker or carpenter or whatever, but that you can still make things with love that are well made and and whole. And that that's the most important thing when it comes to making anything, I suppose. The same with a piece of writing. Oh, I can't remember the exact quote. It's like, none of it matters. It's all that matters, which is one of my favourite bits. Oh, yeah, I believe I believe it's all that matters. I believe it doesn't matter at all. And oh my God, Peggy, like this last year, like I finished this book in 2018, really. I wrote it really quickly over the course of sort of about six months when I was working up to an exhibition. And then, you know, as books sort of do, they sort of go away for a year and you edit them a bit and then they come out and you have to speak about them with renewed vigor. Um, whilst kind of going, what was that about again? Um, but but this year, like I've thought so much about the ideas in handiwork, and like I really decided that I was going to try to show work um, in twenty twenty. And everything, you know, I I have one piece that was accepted into a group show that the group show still hasn't happened. You know, it was supposed to happen last April. Um, and there's zero opportunities at the moment in the art world. I mean, the same in publishing in a way, like there seem to be a huge amount of books coming out in this spring and summer that are delayed from last year. So this whole year will be like dealing with backlogs from last year. And as a result of which, you no know, new opportunities are coming up because all exhibitions are planned sort of far in advance. So again, I've just spent the year like making things, accumulating things and like <laughs> and trying to deal with what I'm doing it for, especially when. I feel constantly like I should be writing because, you know, people actually care about the stuff I write. Like I get shortlisted for awards and stuff. And instead, more and more hours go into like, you know, these this huge tapestry I've been making for over a year that's like still not even finished. And I just I do just keep thinking, why? Why do I spend so much time on this stuff? Um, and it accumulates and accumulates. And we don't own the house that we live in, you know, and we, we don't have much storage space. So it's funny. It's like the book has just haunted me all year. And really, I haven't resolved any of it at all. <laughs> I, I think a lot of people would, would absolutely. You, if you if you sold those beautiful little little birds, Sarah, and the little dogs that you made during Spill Simmer, I, I just think people would be queuing up. I have an uneasy relationship. Like I gave away the dogs. The dogs are just, you know, I still have a pile of them here if anyone wants one the birds now for ages I kind of thought like there's very few birds um everyone thought that what I was describing making in the book was the birds and even though that's very plausible like it's a reasonable mistake to make um when I reread it in fact like I was making I wasn't making the birds at all I really only made about 20 of them in order to photograph and illustrate the book um I needed to do enough to make a heap for the picture on the cover <laughs> so recently I've been looking at them and thinking you know either I don't break them up because they're a series and I should keep them together or I do just break them up and give them to people like you you know people who championed the book all along but then they're so fragile as well I'm like it's gonna be a real operation to post them to people and I don't know when I'm ever gonna see people again <laughs> oh it's a real it's a real um the challenge of the thingness of things though it's touched on as well with with your dad's the compendium that your mum makes of of the the things that he's made you know that the kind of like the the materiality obviously of of what people produce is a big a big point in the book but before if we move on to there but I did want to ask you just just talking about this book being in the world 
you know, in 2020. That must be a really curious and extraordinary feeling for a book to meet its meet a moment. <laughs> it felt like so much of it was so pertinent to what people were going through last year. Yeah, didn't it? Didn't it? And my next novel, which is really sort of fell out of handiwork, or like I've been writing it since 2016, probably the end of 2016. And I sort of paused and wrote handiwork at the same time. So I feel they're very much, you know, the kind of thing that might go in a slipcase together one day. <laughs> and the publication of that has been delayed um, for a year, you know, for obvious reasons. And I just keep thinking, it's really pandemic-y. Like it really is like a sort of a pandemic novel. But I had no idea what was coming. <laughs> I just imagined this sort of um, this tiny world in which two people, two recluses, you know, live on a hill and grapple with the meaning of life and making. And uh, that's kind of what the book is as well. And I'm afraid by the time it comes out, there'll be like millions of such like novels because we've all lived through it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm interested then. So there's uh, someone in the book you mentioned, I think he's an architect, John Paul Cooper. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was one of the arts and crafts movement guys. I think that was in the context of the metalwork, I think, was it? It, well, it's around the idea of an inanimate object has an inner spirit which could could be brought to life by the artist. Okay. And that sort of drove him and his desire to make and to create things. I just wondered, you know, and in saying about the book or being drawn to a certain, you know, the idea of two recluses on a hill before the pandemic, what are the things that draw you to the making of ceramic birds or, or the boats you've been making? Oh, I can hear a dog in the background even better. Oh, wonderful. I'm asking you, I suppose, across all your work, you know, the the, the visual art, the the, the making, the, the writing, what do you, can you identify what it is that it's, spurs you? Yeah, it, it's like a weirdly spiritual belief. I don't, no, I think I do fully believe this, that if you put, if you put enough care and time and love, for want of a better word, into something, that that will show, you know, so that if you... I guess, you know, perhaps a good example is um, Duchamp's urinal, you know, that that people will will look at that in an art gallery and register that it's novel or that it's a clever idea or whatever. Um, But they won't really spend time with it or, you know, stare into it in the way that you might, you know, a, a very dense Van Gogh painting or something like that. And I guess I that's what I've learned about about writing as well, that if you you know, I, I mentioned before that at the beginning I decided I would write a novel and it would have a plot and a beginning and a middle and an end. And now, like, I put, I kind of bled my heart out into it as well because it was depicting this world that was my world. But, but at the same time, I know that I could never just sit down and say, okay, I'm going to write another novel. Um, like, the book has to really feel like it needs to be written um, and feel like, feel like it's an era of my life. I mean, that's really all I'm doing. I think every era so far has had. Um, uh, as ha- has had a book in some form and then shorter eras are marked by the projects that I make um, by the by the art stuff so so for me I guess I I don't pretend to know many things about the world or about other people's existences but by chronicling mine you know maybe just the personal political thing and that's the way that's the way I'm telling the story I'm just not telling it straight you know, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. tell the truth, but tell it slant. Emily Dickinson. Yes, Emily Dickinson. I was grasping for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was it was it strange to having written novels that okay have, have much of you know as you say your world in them? Was it was it a strange departure to write a book that was so 
non-covertly your world? Well, you know, there was a point at which I thought, oh God, I can't um, sort of publish this as a really long essay. Like, what is it? Maybe it's a novella. So I changed the first person to a third person. And it was a she was sitting here at the different stations and she was, you know, putting up the bird feeders or whatever. And I looked at it like that for a while. And then I thought, no, it's kind of, I just felt, it really felt like a deception. Um, And I thought, well, you know, why not just, but funnily enough, when I turned it back, I, I guess I changed certain details when it was fictional in order for it to make a better story. And when I turned it back into my voice and uh, a nonfiction, you know, personal essay, I didn't realign the details. So like some of it is not true. <laughs> and I think that's okay. <laughs> you know, I, I like I say, I think the best art sort of slightly changes the details to be less plausible or more plausible or whatever the case may be. In the same way, I suppose, with the sculptures that I make, the little objects that I make, I'm, I'm, I usually kind of flatline details um, in order to make something more aesthetically interesting. I know, I think it's absolutely fair, fair enough that it, that applies to all art, tell the, tell the story in the best way. I, I want to ask you a little bit about just 2020 and now we're in 2021, which is basically just three 2020s in a trench coat with a fake moustache on. Um, but how, you, you know, you, you said in the book, you know, that the point at which you're writing 2018, you said, um, you know, it's been mostly plaster. What has, what has 2020 and now 2021 been in terms of making for you then? More plaster. <laughs> I predict that I will die someday of, um, of lung cancer brought on by like my dad, in fact, brought on by inhaling the particles of modeling plaster. <laughs> Occasionally I look at it and go, hmm, maybe I should be wearing a mask. But yeah, no, actually, I'll, I'll t- what I can talk about is, um, do you remember, Peggy, and I'm pretty sure you were responsible for this in some form. I was in Aberdeen at the May Festival in 2019, early 2019. And um, I did the event. I can't remember if it was the same day. I think it was the day after. And my flight was like in the evening. I was just wandering around Aberdeen. But one of the things I went to was the Maritime Museum. And it was great. It was pretty small. It sort of went up several floors. There was uh, quite a bit about the oil industry. But what I found there, and I love the way this this happens, and I'm afraid it won't happen again because I don't travel anymore. But um, I found a votive ship, a church ship. Um, I think there are actually a few of them, but there was maybe only one on display at the time. It's funny how like there was just a small label attached to it. But model ships is something I've been sort of dabbling in for a while anyway. Um, I, but I had never heard of this thing called a votive ship or a church ship um, because they're not really a thing in Ireland, even though there's plenty of Catholic examples. Um, but anyway, so I've since become um, sort of obsessed with this idea of making a ship as an offering. So the votive ships would have been um, made by local craftspeople and then offered up to the church. They often would have been a replica, say, of a ship that was about to head out on its maiden voyage. And the idea was that if you then offered a model of the ship to the church, then that would keep the ship safe um, for the duration of its journey. Or sometimes they would be given as a sort of a, a, a thanks for a ship that had already returned safely. Um, and they're, they kind of come in every form. They're, they can be warships or merchant vessels or trawlers. I'd been, like I say, I've been dabbling in model ships and I've been making now model container ships with sails. Um, so if you follow me on Instagram, you will have noticed um, about every two weeks I trot out a model container ship with sails. And ultimately, I want to have a big series of them. But it, you know, that really it riffs also on the themes of handiwork and my own kind of um constant anxieties about consumerism and just the amount of stuff in the world which you know comes into our world in these containers and uh, the sales is looking forward to the future um you know because 
I, I, what I, what was hilarious was that I wanted to make some with sails because I wanted to kind of meld the old model ships, the tall ships, um, with the, the newer versions, which is probably also something that was planted in my head, um, in Aberdeen because of the, um, the oil rigs and the models of, um, of the new ships. But then I learned from a book called Down to the Sea with Ships by Horatio Clare. I was reading that, which is kind of his account of, um, voyaging on a container ship as a kind of a writer's residency. And he, um, and there was actually a passage in that about um, about how they want to now or they are now developing I think the Swedes sails that will go on container ships in order to make them more environmentally sound you know going into the future so it's not a thing people have built yet but that's in development so um, so I was charmed by the idea that, that this thing that I'd imagined was actually had actually happened you know in a way it's like, of course the death of imagination it's all already been done anything you can think of it's already out there someone's so done it doing yeah. it so, um, so it's those kind of obsessions that, you know, think little things kind of click into place, and then you mm. just you just jump on it and keep keep going. Absolutely lovely. Yeah, how how great, how great to hear that. Just coming coming to our finish, then, Sarah. Just wanted to ask you a little bit about, if I may, you know, Ali Ali Smith, the great Ali Smith. She she says a book is like a bird. Speaking of birds, you know, so it sort of flaps out into the world, and then it becomes its own thing, and it, you know, it meets its readers and everything, which of course this book has abundantly done. But it's also going to have an adaptation of sorts. And I, I wondered if you could speak to us just a little bit about that. Danny Gill is adapting it for a live performance. And that's part of a Wigtown adjacent project, uh, Spotlit. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, um, Danny is kind of the, she's the overall sort of boss of the thing. But it's actually more or less been adapted by um, a friend of mine called Brendan McEvely. I, I've essentially written a different text that sort of came out of handiwork um, and that runs along the same themes. But um, but the show as a whole will be sort of like it's Brendan's love child. <laughs> and his premise is to take, to, I guess, to take theatre and to, to think of the literary reading and that kind of event and the kind of, you know, the regular format and then the Q&A at the end or whatever, and to sort of liberate it, to make it a bit more like a piece of theatre um, or something like where the reading meets theatre. So, um, so you know, what he's designed and I've, uh, like I say, I've done the text, but other than that, um, it's between him and the musicians, um, Irene Buckley and Elaine um, Hoey, I think, and they've composed music for what will be a long reading. Um, but then there are also these little video pieces that are just short stories, I suppose, about other artists that make sense to the piece as a whole. So like, it's really eclectic. There was something similar um, last year, also kind of developed by Brendan, that was based on Ian Mullaney's book, Minor Monuments, it was also published by Trump Press last year. It was a series of essays. And like I say, it's handiwork, but it isn't. So like, it's not actually from handiwork, but it's similar to the themes. It's more than anything else, it's sort of about ritual and about how, how as a child, I had the kind of rituals of being raised Roman Catholic and as an adult, I've sort of substituted those rituals with secular things, with odd habits or obsessions or with art. So that's kind of it. And it's built, it's called the alphabet of birds because it's built around this alphabet of birds <laughs> that, um, that, I, that is not that brilliant as, as a poem. I guess it's like a long poem, but it's really more like the index from a bird book. Um, but I've done it from memory. And it was something that I started doing because I couldn't sleep. I went through a long phase of um, just suffering from insomnia. And in order to get lull myself to sleep, I would start with A and I would go albatross, avocet, ox, and then blackbird, buzzard. <laughs> and that's, um, 
So it's kind of built around this alphabet of birds, um, but it's telling all of these little stories of ritual and obsession um, and bringing in like four other artists and a bunch of musicians and it's very multi-layered and I'm not explaining it very well. No, you are. It sounds absolutely gorgeous, honestly. That's so exciting. Do we know when, given given the world, do we know when that will land, as it were? Oh, well, no. Um, we hope to, to do the first performance at Corch Festival in Galway, but that's April and, I mean, at the moment, I think it looks really unlikely that we'll be allowed over here. So maybe in July um, with Danny, she's also directing a book festival in Ennis and um, hopefully we'll do it by September. But there may be some way of, um, uh, you know, doing like a recording, a live recording of it just with the people who are involved and then putting it on YouTube or something like that, you know. So exciting to learn about an adaptation of handiwork making its way into the world. We will look forward to that very much. If you'd like to find out more about Spotlit and Wigtown's involvement in the project as a whole, then do visit www.spot-lit.eu. Thank you so much to Sarah for chatting to us and for introducing us to her world of handiwork, northern wheat ears and much more. We're keeping fingers crossed for the Rathbones Folio Prize and if you've not read it yet, then we highly recommend Handiwork, which is available from your favourite independent bookshop. If you're not subscribed to the podcast already, then you can find us at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music or SoundCloud, so you don't have to miss a thing, as we'll be back again very soon. Meanwhile, if you'd like sound and vision, then next week's Wigtown Wednesday is with Catherine May and me talking about her stunning book, Wintering. So that's Wednesday, the 24th of February, and perhaps we will see you there. Till the next time, though, for now, take very good care. Bye bye.